You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. The reading comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, school's gone back this past week, and hopefully it's been a good start for you if you're at school or for your kids or grandkids. And week one, way too early to be thinking about this, but one of the features of school is the dreaded school report. Uh, I say dreaded, dreaded by teachers because they have to write the things, but maybe dreaded by students as well if you're not quite sure what's going to come home on those reports. And the adults uh, amongst you might remember things that were on your school reports. Talks too much, needs to pay more attention in class. If she only put as much effort into her schoolwork as being the class clown, she would excel. Well, what about if churches got report cards every term or every six months or so? What would be on our report card as a church? What would be the things that we are told we're doing well? What are the things that we'd be told that we need to work on to improve? Well, we're continuing today our series called Dear Church, where we're looking at the start of the book of Revelation. And we start today in chapter two, looking at a series of letters that were written to the churches in the Roman province of Asia. And they're a bit like report cards where they tell the church, churches that they're being written to, what they're doing well and what they need to work on. Uh, they're letters written by Jesus. So Jesus, in this instance, is, is the teacher. He's the one giving the assessment. And because it comes from Jesus, you can be sure that it's going to be uh, honest, realistic, and objective. Today, we're focusing particularly on the letter to the church at Ephesus. 
But I thought it'd be helpful to give a bit of an overview of how these letters work. Uh, some of you who are a bit older might remember this guy uh, that you're seeing on your screen right now. Uh, this is Clippy, who was a feature of Microsoft Office products in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And if you were typing in a Word document back then and you typed the words, Dear Fred, then Clippy would pop up out of nowhere and would say, it looks like you're writing a letter. Would you like help? And so if you say, yes, I'd like some help, then uh, you'd automatically have this formatted document in the form of a letter where you filled in the blanks. Well, if Clippy existed back in the first century AD uh, and you started writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? I can imagine him popping up and saying, it looks like you're writing a letter to the churches. Would you like some help? Because there's a set structure in each of these letters that we see in chapter two and chapter three of Revelation. Uh, there's seven key elements that each of them work through in some way. Uh, firstly, there's a greeting to the angel of the church in city name, right? Secondly, we get a title for the risen Jesus, which are usually taken from Revelation chapter one, which we looked at last week. Uh, and so in verse one of our passage, we have, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's a reminder that the risen Jesus stands in the midst of his church, uh, that's the lampstands, and that he holds uh, the leaders, uh, the, the church members, the church in some way in his hands, that's the stars. So he's in a good position to lovingly and accurately speak truth to this situation. Thirdly, thirdly you get a list of the things that the church is doing well, uh, usually headed with the words, I know, right? Start with the positives, they say, and Jesus does that in his letters. Uh, though in one of the letters, the church gets no positives in their list. Fourthly, there's a critique of the things that they're not doing well. Uh, again, most have this. Uh, one church uh, doesn't. Followed, uh, fifthly, by a warning about what will happen if there is an action to deal with these things that the church is doing wrong. And sixthly, there's an exhortation, which is standard across all of the letters. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's an echo of something Jesus says in his own teaching. He often says this after giving, uh, telling a parable. And it's an encouragement to pay attention, pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. As I said last week, uh, this is God's word to us. We need to hear it. We need to take it to heart and we need to be prepared to take action on what we've heard. And lastly, this is uh, step seven in each of these letters. Uh, Jesus encourages his church to keep persevering with a promise. Uh, they're promises that point to the great future that we have if we stick with Jesus and the victory that will be achieved through Jesus. 
Well, today's letter, today's Bible passage is the letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus it is, is a city in modern day Turkey. Uh, you can see it on the slide uh, that's coming up where it's located and also the locations of the other seven, the other six churches uh, that these letters are written to. Uh, you can visit Ephesus today and perhaps you have. Uh, it's a great place to go because there's been lots of archaeological digs that have taken place in the city. So you can see something of the, the ancient city that have been uncovered through these digs. At the time that this letter was written, Ephesus was one of the most important cities. It was the most important city uh, in the Roman province of Asia. It wasn't the capital, but it was the biggest and most important city. It had a population of around 250,000 people. That's a big city. That's, that's twice the size of Greater Bendigo. Okay, so it's a, it was a big city. And the reason it was so big was because it was very active in trade. It had a port. Um, the city was located uh, with a port which had access to the open sea not far away. And so trade could take place to the north and the south, but most importantly, to the east, uh, the trade routes into Mesopotamia. It was also a very religious city. So Ephesus was the home to the temple to Artemis, Artemis, uh, the Greek goddess of wisdom. And the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, if you go back to the book of Acts in the New Testament, we read there about Paul's visit to Ephesus where he brought the good news of Jesus to Ephesus for the first time. And a riot actually started out because Paul was teaching people to follow Jesus and it was impacting the trade in idols to the goddess Artemis. So the silversmiths in the city get really cranky with Paul because he's undermining their, their trade in these idols. And so this conflict between being a follower of Jesus versus being a follower of Artemis is right there from the beginning, would have been a real part of life for Christians in the city of Ephesus. But Ephesus was also a key centre for early Christianity. As I said, uh, Paul visited there. He didn't just uh, visit and move on. He actually stayed there for two years, which is one of the longest times that Paul spent anywhere. So they had two years of the Apostle Paul teaching them about Jesus and really training and equipping them. And the church at Ephesus became a very strong church. There's letters from the second century AD, which holds up the church at Ephesus as a model church for other churches to follow. And in 431 AD, one of the worldwide councils of the church took place in the city of Ephesus. They drew Christians from everywhere in the known world at the time to the city of Ephesus to, to meet, to gather, because it was so central for early Christianity. So it's not a surprise that the very first of these letters is the letter to the church at Ephesus. But I guess the question is, what does their report card say? What does Jesus have to say to this church? Well, we get the positives in verses 2 and 3. Firstly, they are commended for being hardworking and persevering. So verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work 
and your perseverance. Uh, And in verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So we get a clear picture of faithful people in this church who stick at things and don't give up, even when things are hard. They're, They're solid, they're reliable, salt of the earth, Christian people who are happy to serve and to keep on serving. Uh, Now, I think our church, St John's, would also get a tick on this report card as well. I think service really does lie at the heart and the identity of our church community, and it has done for a long time. Uh, I remember when I came here as senior minister nearly 10 years ago and I was meeting with different leaders, one of the things that struck me was how faithfully people had been serving in different ministries over many years and in some cases over decades. They'd persevered. They'd kept on serving. They'd done it even when things were hard and they were doing it joyfully and faithfully. Uh, Some of them are still doing it. And it's a wonderful feature of our church. Now, of course, the flip side of this is that we always need to open new spaces, new avenues for other people to serve. We need to be prepared to introduce new things and new ways of doing things so that other people also get the opportunity to serve and use their gifts and skills as well. Uh, It also means uh, that we can't just sit back and rely on the same people to serve and keep serving. It's not okay for us to say, oh, someone else will do it. I don't need to bother because there's all these people serving. Uh, There's a need for us to use our gifts and serve and, and join in with this identity, this attitude of service within the church. But in the same way that the church at Ephesus was commended for its hard work and its service, I think St. John's also would be commended as a as a key part of our identity as well. The other thing that the church at Ephesus is commended for is their commitment to sound doctrine. This is what verse 2 says. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So this is a church that's uh, not gullible, but tests what they're hearing. They don't get sucked in by false teachers who are trying to change the message about Jesus. Now, what's obviously happened here is that people have come to Ephesus claiming to be apostles, that is, claiming to be messengers sent from God. But when the church has listened to what they've said, when they've measured that against the Bible and what they would have been taught by the apostle Paul, they've realised that this doesn't line up. This is not the message of Jesus. These people are actually deceitful, false teachers uh, teaching untruths. You get a similar idea down in verse 6 where they're commended at Ephesus because they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, let me, let me be upfront. No one knows who the Nicolaitans were. No one knows what they taught, what they did. Um, all we know is that they were obviously dodgy. And the church at Ephesus worked that out and so didn't believe the things they said and didn't follow the practices that they were teaching, uh, which is a great thing. Again, going back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, 
when the Apostle Paul meets for the last time with the elders from the church in Ephesus, one of the things that he warns them against is that there will be savage wolves, he says, who will come in and attack the flock, attack the members of the church. And he tells the leaders that they need to be good shepherds. They need to protect the people, protect them from false teaching and practices that are out of step with what Jesus would have them do. And they've done that. They've weighed up this teaching. They've decided it doesn't match. They've challenged the errors and encouraged their church to stick with the truth about Jesus. Uh, They haven't been gullible. They've made sure that the message has been right and that the practices that they follow are in line with what Jesus would have them do. Now, that's important for us to remember as well. We've got a great history here at St. John's of faithful Bible teaching over decades. Um, That's been true in our church services, in our kids and youth ministry as we've been training up the next generation of Jesus followers. And also in our life groups as we've gathered together to look at the Bible and discuss that with each other. Right? We love the Bible here at St. John's and we want to be faithful to God's word, God's teaching, uh, and not be distracted by untruths or lies that might lead us astray. Right? We want to understand it and we want to apply it to our lives. But it's something that you can never take your eye off the ball for. You've got to stick at it because there's always going to be people trying to introduce new teachings which are not aligned with what Jesus has taught us. And there'll always be people saying, oh, no, Jesus didn't really mean that you should live that way um, and try and water down kind of the ethical demands of Jesus. Uh, whether that's in the area of relationships or money or how we use our time or whatever, we've always got to be alert to this reality, to stay true to the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of Jesus and the way that he wants us to live. The way of Jesus is a narrow way. It's a demanding way. And we need to keep at it, stick with it in the long term, persevere, and even when things get tough, come back constantly to God's word to ensure that we're following the truth. Now, the Ephesians have done that well, and so we should follow their example and ensure that it's something that we stick at in our church as well. So that's what they've done well. They've been faithful, serving, persisting in the work that they've done, and they haven't abandoned the truth or allowed error to creep into their church. So what is it that they're called out on? What is it that Jesus says is a critique for this church at Ephesus? Well, it's in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. They've lost their love. Their focus on hard work and service has been good. Their focus on sticking with the truth has been good, and yet somehow in the midst of all of that, they've lost their love. They need to rekindle their love so that it motivates their service and helps them to persist, and also uh, that the love accompanies their commitment to truth so that they don't become harsh or judgmental. Now, they might have forsaken their love in one of two ways. 
Uh, it could mean that they've forsaken their love for Jesus. Uh, older versions used to translate this verse as, uh, you have lost your first love. The implication being that you've, you've lost your love for, for Jesus and you've lost uh, the love that you had maybe when you first came to faith, when you first realised everything that Jesus had done for you, when you realised that Jesus died on the cross, that he went through pain and suffering, shedding his own blood so that our sins could be forgiven. And when that first struck you, the, the love that you had for Jesus just sprung up or you realise that Jesus is a living saviour, that we can have a relationship here and now, uh, that he gives us his spirit to live within us and that overwhelming feeling of, of love and joy for Jesus uh, when you first came to faith. Uh, for others amongst us, uh, maybe we've sort of grown up knowing Jesus and been taught from a very young age and so there's not you know, a distinct change point where that happened. Uh, but there is a sense in which uh, even for those of us who have been Christians a long time, you can become jaded or lose that love for Jesus that you had in your younger years when you were more enthusiastic about faith. Uh, whatever the case, it's possible to lose that love for Jesus, to allow our service merely to become duty, doing it because we have to do it or we know we should do it, rather than being motivated by our love for Jesus. And we can also uh, allow our commitment to truth to become proud and unloving as well, not Jesus-focused. So this could be talking about love for Jesus drifting away. But it could also be talking about losing your love for other people, uh, people within the church, but also people outside the church that we're seeking to share Jesus with. The Apostle Paul in his letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, says that faithful actions done for God, even spectacular, miraculous actions done for God, if they're done without love, are nothing and they gain nothing. So again, it's possible to persevere serving other people, but lose the love that we have for them. We can actually become embittered and resentful. Why are there more people serving? Why do I have to keep doing it? I've been doing this for years. What about the other people? Where are they? What are they doing? And it's also possible to be committed to the truth about Jesus, but to grow harsh and judgmental uh, with people who don't know the Bible or take the Bible as seriously as we do or to turn inward and create this Christian bubble within the church community because it's safer just to do that within the Christian bubble than seeking to love people outside the church, right? It's hard to keep loving and reaching out with the good news of Jesus when people are antagonistic or reject us. So we can turn inward and stop loving by reaching out to the people around us. But let's be clear on this. Losing love is a major mistake for the church. It's a fatal error. Because for Christians, love is our signature move, right? 
it should be the thing that Christians are known for. It should motivate everything that we do. Jesus' two great commands to his followers are love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love God, and love your neighbours as you love yourself. If we lose love, then we just become a clanging symbol in the words of Paul. We become noisy and annoying and useless. So if we think that's happened, if we think individually we've lost our love or as a church we've ceased to be as loving as we should, what should we do? Well, the answer is in verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. So there's three steps to take. Uh, Step one, consider, right? Stop, make an honest assessment of how our love is going. Uh, Do we notice that we're acting in a way which is unloving or we're not as loving as we used to be or we've drifted in our love? Well, don't just ignore it or suppress it. Don't just pretend that it's not there. Remember, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Is the Spirit of God prompting you on this, prompting us on this? Don't ignore it. This is a serious business. Consider it. Think about it. But step two, repent. Now, repentance is not just feeling bad about something, but it's a conscious act of will to decide to change. It's changing direction, doing a U-turn to make things right. A good thing to do in repentance is to actually name before God the area that we're aware of and we want to change, to say, God, I recognise that I've drifted in my love. I'm not loving you. I'm not loving other people as much as I was or I should be. And that's not how I want to live, God. Please help me to change. Empower me by your spirit to make those changes. And step three Do the things you did at first. Okay, love is an action more than it is a feeling. If we recognise that we've been unloving uh, in whatever way, well, the antidote for that is not to just wallow in feeling bad and the antidote is not to try and muster up loving feelings so that you can love other people, but we're told to just to do it, to get on with actively loving other people. Do things that demonstrate your love for God. Do things that demonstrate your love for other people. Uh, The loving feelings may well then follow from it, but we don't sit around and wait until those feelings are somehow generated by themselves, but we get on with the act of loving and ask God to kindle the feelings of love as we do so. So Jesus challenges his church to consider, to repent, and to do. Get on with the business of loving. Start performing your signature move, church, which is love. We're supposed to be known as people of love. Is that how people think about us? Is that how people think about you, about our church? Because love lies at the centre of who we're supposed to be, And so we need to pay attention to whether we're acting in love to God and to others. Well, why does this matter? 
To finish off uh, this talk, I want us to consider both the warning and the promise that are contained in this letter. They're both motivations to love, to keep on serving faithfully, and to remain committed to the truth about Jesus. So the church in Ephesus is warned in verse 5. This is the warning of the letter. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is, this is so serious, they will cease to exist as a church. That's how serious the lack of love is. Now, do you remember I told you what a key centre for early Christianity Ephesus was? Well, today, there's no church in Ephesus. Now, there's been massive socio-political changes in that region of the world over the past 2,000 years. That's true. But there's actually no lampstand, no church burning within that city. You see, if the church loses love, then its service and its stand for truth count for nothing. It's a sobering warning not only for them, but also for us. But here also the promise in verse 7. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So at the start of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are there in this paradise that God has created for them, and they have access to the tree of life. Uh, which is symbolic for the reality that they enjoy the intimate presence of God in an ongoing way. They walk and talk and have a relationship with God in that garden. And then in the last chapter of the Bible, the last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, this image is repeated where we see the new heavens and the new earth. And there's this river that flows from the very throne of God and the tree of life is there alongside the river. So when God brings the final victory in Jesus, when he defeats sin and evil and death, God's people have access to the tree of life. The, the promise is for those who stick with Jesus, who persevere to the end, serving him, sticking to his truth, loving him and loving in his name, there is this glorious future where we get intimate relationship with God in the new creation that he has made for us to enjoy, which goes on forever, life, eternal life with God and with each other. It's worth it, dear church. We need to take seriously uh, the truths that Jesus brings to our attention to maintain the good, and to take action in those areas where we're out of step with God. But the reason we do it is because it's worth it in the end, that through what Jesus has done for us, through his life and death and resurrection, he's won the victory for us. And he opens up that relationship and that life that comes through him that we get to enjoy forever, eating from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.